I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is housing. With me in the studio today is Judith Carlin. Judith, or as she typically prefers Judy, is the CEO of the Omaha Housing Authority. Prior to that role, she was the HR Director and Attorney for the Youngstown Metropolitan Housing Authority and previously was a strategic consultant advising nonprofits. Judy is originally from Sharon, Pennsylvania, reaching Omaha via Youngstown and Cleveland. Judy earned a degree in speech pathology at Ohio State before earning her law degree at Cleveland State University. Judy also has an MA in audiology from Case Western. In her spare time, Judy is an artist and a writer, and she aspires to be a stand-up comic. Judy, hi. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you. So, Housing Authority. What is a housing authority and what does it do? Well, housing, first of all, we're housers. The same way any developer builds apartment buildings, we manage apartment buildings. The housing authority itself was in Omaha was created in 1939 um, under federal law to eradicate blight and stimulate jobs. The federal government enacted the first housing law, and it mandated states create housing authorities. And ultimately, we are kind of a hybrid creature. We are created under state law. We're funded by the federal government. We provide housing assistance to low and very low income families. Could you just give me Omaha Housing Authority by the numbers? We have, uh, and I don't have the total budget number, Stuart. Um, We serve 4,131 families through our Section 8 assistance. We serve 2,704 families through our public housing. So we serve about 7,000, almost 7,000 people in the Omaha area. Um, we have a staff of about 145, and that incorporates maintenance, utility workers on the sites, property managers. Um, we have, you know, obviously a finance department, and we have a family self-sufficiency, a community relations department that works very hard in terms of bringing uh, the people and opportunity together. And so we have a very good team, um, and that's how we get it done. So what's the history then of the Omaha Housing Authority? Um, You mentioned the date 1939, I think it was. Uh, Is that how far Omaha Housing Authority dates back, or is this a newer entity? Omaha is one of the older, oldest housing authorities in the country. Um, It's the first in Nebraska, and it has a, a very rich history in many of the developments. Southside Terrace is our oldest development currently. Pleasant View Homes is one of the older developments that was demolished right now. That's where 75 North is, is building. The housing authorities in those days generally were barrack-style apartments, very um, recognizable in terms of how they were built. And... Those, you know, those developments housed then, as they do now, working families who were of limited means. You mentioned state law guides the, 
the sort of bringing to life of a housing authority, but it's federal funding and, and perhaps this umbrella of federal law that, that sort of governed these entities coming into being. Um, are there any sort of tensions between federal structures and, and then the fact that uh, it's, it, it's funded federally? But there are state laws that govern them, and then maybe you know we exist locally. So maybe there are city-based uh, uh, regulations or situations. No, surprisingly, housing authorities work in concert with their communities. Housing authorities across the United States work within their cities and their counties to uh, provide housing, and there's generally very harmonious relationships. I would say that that we are easily recognizable in some instances. So if there is a perceived problem, um, it could be any rental, anybody's rental unit, but the if there is a, sometimes a negative connotation, you would say, oh, that's a housing authority or that's a project. Those barrack-style developments were instantly recognizable. So when I say there are harmonious relationships, I'm not being naive. I'm talking about in terms of at the level of government cooperation. There isn't any tension in that. We have a good relationship with our legislators. We work together. We have a good relationship with the city. We work with our police department. But traditionally, housing authorities, because they are easily recognizable, if there were problems, yes, they were identifiable as a place to direct a problem. But we are like any other neighborhood or apartment building. We were simply where people live. What is life like uh, in a typical Omaha housing authority property? The same as it would be in any other apartment building or single family home. Uh, we we have uh, we have families who you know work long hours and some people with disabilities. We have elderly people. We, it's the same as any other community. So our lives at the Housing Authority are no different than any other community or apartment building in Omaha. Essentially, I was raised on a housing estate that was city-owned property. And uh, at that time in my life, I had no understanding of, of what that meant. But essentially, it was council housing. We called it council housing. And that, to me, seems to be the English equivalent of, of what the housing authority is. Yes, here. it is. It, it makes me wonder then, why are there the sort of pejoratives or the negative associations that maybe are thrown fairly or unfairly at um, housing association or council estate uh, developments? It's interesting. I track housing, public housing internationally. So I have a Google alert. And whether you're in Malaysia, China, Japan, England, every subsidized housing entity has the same problems. There is, number one, the lack of affordable housing. People need places to live. There is not enough housing to fill the gap. The identity of a housing authority as being a flashpoint or an identifier is an interesting phenomenon, and I think it has more to do with how we judge poverty as um, as a nation and as people of the world, more than how we judge where people live. So poverty, you know, is is a is a condition. Poverty is not a, a personality trait. Poverty can be episodic. Poverty can be uh, come on quickly. So it seems remarkably unfair, then, in many respects, that we conflate this idea of 
poverty and community. And I certainly agree with you that there is no less sense of cohesive, harmonious community in venues that that um, maybe have lower than average incomes compared to those uh, those neighborhoods that maybe have higher than average incomes, um, but but have a more fractured sense of community. And I'm wondering how it is that we arrived at a place where we perhaps put too much emphasis on housing to solve the problem of poverty, while at the same time uh, we seem to label public housing as as areas of uh, of impoverishment and and maybe even blame in some way. The interesting fact is that we have a need for affordable housing across the board. Within Douglas County, we do not have enough apartments for moderate, low to very low-income people. There's a housing need. So if you equate housing and say, why are we focusing on housing? Well, fundamentally, if you don't have stable housing and you're housing insecure, you are going to have more health issues. You're going to have education issues. And that's demonstrated. I mean, the incidence of health issues um, are both an opening into poverty and, um, you know, a, a factor indivisible from poverty. If you have a health crisis, and let's say you do not have health insurance, and you lose your job because you can't work, and then all of a sudden, you can't afford your apartment, and you're looking for affordable or low-income housing. So you're already stressed, and your health is stressed. Housing is necessary to healing and support. Stable housing for school children is the first step to be able to provide that kind of uh, safety zone so kids can do their homework, so they can take a shower, so they can do their laundry. Housing is a pivotal issue. Community, I believe that we miss the community that exists. We look at public housing and sometimes because the stories are quite dramatic and um, sobering, we miss the skills, the expertise, the support. People who thrive and rise out of poverty and survive in poverty are highly relational. You you go to your aunt or your, you know, your brother or your sister, and there are those cohesive units. The neighborhood is, in many respects, um, the way I remember my old neighborhood. You'd get on your bike and you'd ride, and if you misbehaved four blocks down, that traveled up the street. There is a tremendous amount of intelligence and work ethic that is required to survive. One of the things poverty does is it there's no insulation, you know, there's nothing to cover up if there's a problem. If I am very very well off and my son is a heroin addict or has a problem with his temper, those kinds of things can be masked. Those things are totally unmasked when you have no mechanism to support it to to cover it up. Um, there is no uh, dotted line that separates North Omaha uh, from, you know, the more uh, affluent areas of Omaha. There isn't any artificial divider. This is 
our community. What other myths might you have heard uh, leveled uh, around public housing and, and how might we puncture those myths? I would, you know, speaking not of Omaha, if I could go back to my experience in, in Youngstown, Ohio. In Youngstown, there was the um, perception that if any time violent, violence occurred, it occurred on public housing property. And we were fortunate to have uh, crime studies, and we tracked all the 911 calls. And the proportion of calls were far lower than the number of units or presence we have in the city. And I would say that although I don't have crime statistics, the calls that have, you know, and the calls and the incidences are not public housing calls. There's, you know, problems within the community. We're very, very fortunate to have the police force that we have. Um, and there is a great deal of, I think, really good police work that happens in Omaha, a lot of community activities and, and outreach, which I think is the most heartening thing about living in Omaha for me. Coming from, from Ohio, there's a whole different sense of our police department as, uh, from my perspective, having seen what I, see, what I saw in Ohio, is that there's just a tremendous partnership and opportunity in dealing with difficult problems but having open conversations. And again, those kinds of things um, are city problems, are community problems. They're everywhere problems. What stories then should we be telling about? Um, your housing authority and, and the experiences there? Well, you know, those aren't the, the really exciting stories. The really, the stories that are exciting, you know, are the ones that have all the, you know, the, the bad stuff in them. But we have uh, a soccer academy um, and we have uh, young people who participate and who, notwithstanding the fact that they live um uh, you know, with a sometimes food insecure, sometimes uh, I would say clothing insecure. They, the discipline they bring to the soccer field and they excel. And the joy they bring, it's amazing. We have a football program. We are, I think, the only housing authority that has a football program. And Coach Ganey, who there was an article in the, um, I think in February 2015, um, or not, not February, November 2015, Coach Ganey, there did the uh, World Herald did an article. Coach Ganey has been coaching football for years and years and years. He picks the kids up. He takes them to football games. These young men practice. They're disciplined, and they, you know, they watch a football game on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon. Same way anybody does when they watch their kid play ball. And there's families in the stands and they're cheering and there's cheerleaders and they're jumping and, and doing their cheers. The story is that we are simply people living and working and trying to make our lives better, raise our families. I would say that's the real message. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Let's get it, funk, a pony, 
Cause you know we got to get it wrong Mary J is in the spot tonight And I'ma make you feel alright Come on baby, just party with me Let loose and set your body free Leave your situations at the door So when you step inside, jump on the floor I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. With me in the studio today is Judy Carlin, the CEO of Omaha Housing Authority. What are some of the pressures that that housing authorities are facing? Fundamentally, it would be funding, and that would be a federal government issue. As you read, most many housing authorities are facing capital needs that exceed the money they have. We have um, 11 towers. We have two family sites. We have numerous um, scattered sites throughout the community, all those sites, all those buildings, the brick and mortar need to be maintained. Cost to maintain that is is not, you know, is, is significant. Our capital budget, which is what we do use to make the, uh, the major repairs, has essentially been slashed in half in the last three years. So, we look at funding as an issue, doing more with less. Um, the opportunity we have is to work more within the community to build those relationships that can provide a cohesive safety net so that we aren't evicting people, so that people have the assistance they need if there's somebody that is aging and they need some assistance within their um, to maintain their, you know, their independence. We want to build that safety net. That's going to be a goal this year to further strengthen those. So we are going to have challenges, but we also are going to have opportunities. Is there anything in particular that you're steering or leading or hoping that Omaha Housing Authority will be doing to help contribute to or just spur that conversation, even in small ways? We would like to help integrate our apartment dwellers into a larger community. And I don't think this is a housing authority issue. I think it's an issue for every apartment dweller. If you live in an apartment in the community, you may feel like a transient and you may not be fully invested. I think we we would like to have a sense of community involvement within our agency and within our 
within our properties. We want to make available opportunities for interaction and communication. We want to provide partnerships. We want to build and, and cement those partnerships that can bring programming that will enhance those conversations. So this year, you know, we are embarking on a strategic plan. We're doing strategic planning now. Um, we're going to be uh, involved in a lot of conversations. We are going to be working to build our community relations. What about your own background? Tell me a little bit about how um, how you were raised and your experience of you know what a home and what housing was like. I was born um, in Sharon, Pennsylvania. My mother is first generation. I'm first generation in this country. My mother is from uh, the former Yugoslavia, now Croatia. My parents were very, very hardworking people. Uh, my father was ill a great deal of my life so that we knew poverty. And I know what it feels like. I know what it tastes like. I know that sense that there might not be food. Um, I tell a story that at the end of the month, my mother, who who could have made a banquet from a couple of dandelions and some chicken stock, she would make breaded macaroni because that was cheap. And milk, she cut with powdered milk. So I was very much aware, because of my father's illnesses, multiple illnesses, that money was uh, a problem. I could sense that, although it wasn't discussed. And I remember from a very early age, understanding uh, the social structure. Um, I was a kind of a, um, a, I was a, a voracious reader, and um, very early on, I discovered social justice and, and became, I guess you'd say now woke. So I've been woke a long time, and um, I would debate these things with my mother who'd say, you know, this makes you upset. Why don't you just not think about it? And I'd say, well, I can't not do that. So I, you know, I, I worked and I went to college and, and then I became a lawyer. And I think when I became a lawyer, I really um, found my voice. I, you know, I loved law school and that's where I really began to understand how you could make things change. So my limited experience with those that work hard at the coalface of social justice is that it's exhausting work. And I wonder how driven as you are, called to th that particular motivation, how do you how do you sustain yourself? I um my mother, um, who passed away last year, had uh had had uh, a, a very, very tough life. And she took pleasure in very, very small things. And I take pleasure in very, very small things. And my staff would tell you that, you know, I could have a hot cup of coffee and think that it was like winning the lottery because I just have never lost my ability to thoroughly enjoy the tiniest things, and my kids would tell you that too. Um, it is exhausting. But what sustains all of us who are committed to looking at the problem in its 
full and unvarnished, multidimensional ugliness and glory is that we believe that things can change, that responsibility is fundamental to change, that we accept our responsibility. And if we accept that and we know that and we live that, then we believe that other people can too. So I got my grit from my mother and um, my stubbornness from my father. In an aspirational world, what, what does our community look like? I think a community looks like people sitting on their porch, kids riding bikes down the street. If somebody has a problem four doors down and maybe they're, you know, they had a bad day at work or their son was in the hospital last week for whatever reason, there's somebody at their door knocking saying, what do you need? And there's an awareness that we're there for each other. I mean, and I, and I know that sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but I, I know, I see within the communities we serve people who take care of each other. And that's what we have to do. How do you go about taking care of your staff? You have a very public-facing role. And you deal with members of the public a lot, but you also have a team that you're the head of their organization. And with all the challenges um, and the possibilities ahead of you, I'm also wondering how you look after the team that is the housing authority. That's a really tough one, Stuart, um, and one that I think about a lot. And in fact, we were just talking about it at the office today. We both have to improve performance you know, in, increase customer service um, and improve, not improve morale, support morale. Obviously, the, the um, you know, the trite, you know, the trite saying that you spend more time at, at work than you do at home and with your coworkers than you do with your family is true. But we have to produce. So we work at balancing that. I would tell you I am aware that my staff... Um, many of them deal with a lot, and they bring their best selves to work every day, and that humbles me, and that provides a sense of determination if you know that lifts everybody up. So what we are hoping to accomplish through our strategic planning process is more uh, conversation, uh, more support. Our Board of Commissioners has been very supportive of training. We want to have our employees have the tools they need in terms of training. Uh, obviously, um, we are a highly regulated industry, and training is important. Our, we have a very, very committed board, and that's been excellent. So we keep on working on that every day. I'll let you know how successful we are. <laughs> let me ask this final question. What's on your mind? Well, today what was on my mind was staff morale, staff support, and how we effectively support our residents through their challenges to make it possible that they not be multi-generational in poverty. We talk about, we spent about uh, half an hour today at lunch talking about opportunity and responsibility. It is very difficult to conceptualize what you need to do 
to move forward if you have no idea what you can move forward to. So we talked about that a lot today. We talked about bold ideas, you know. And Omaha is so unique from any other community. There is a tremendous good-hearted, hardworking spirit here. It is, you can feel it in the air when this is an incredible place. Of course, there's political difference. And of course, the things are that, you know, that are friction. But you have conversation. We have good conversation with the mayor, with the police. We work together. We are a community. So what we talk about and what is on my mind is how we can use the resources of the community responsibly to make Omaha a better place. With me in conversation today has been Judith Carlin, the CEO of Omaha Housing Authority. Judy, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. I appreciate it. I think that conversations are everything. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There's so much hatred, war and poverty Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say They're the ones who's coming up and the world is in their hands When you teach the children to jump the very best can But just let it be na, 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 na. The world won't get no better We gotta change it now Just you and me Welcome back to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Dialogue, that part of the show when I'm joined by guests to talk broadly about the show's theme, which this week is housing. With me in dialogue are Craig Moody, Stephen Osberg, and Amanda Brewer. Amanda Brewer has been the CEO of Habitat for Humanity of Omaha for more than 11 years. Her relationship with Habitat for Humanity began in the late 1990s through an AmeriCorps collaboration. Habitat for Humanity of Omaha is a grassroots organization that builds and renovates houses, forges community partnerships, and breaks down barriers. It has worked with more than 800 families since its founding in 1984. Amanda lives in Omaha with her family. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Stuart. Craig Moody is the managing principal of Verdis Group, a sustainability consulting firm here in Omaha. He's an Omaha transplant, having lived here for the last 17 years, 
and he was recently elected to the Omaha Public Power District's Board of Directors. Hello, Craig. Hi, Stuart. Stephen Osberg is an urban planner for the city of Omaha. There, he works to promote transportation options that are affordable and convenient, along with land use patterns that foster lively, walkable neighborhoods. Stephen also enjoys good film, intriguing books, and strong coffee. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Stuart. Happy to be here. So I guess my first question that I'd like to just throw out to each of you is to ask you to say a little about what housing means to you in your life or in your work. Of course. Uh, I live in a house, and I'm, I'm happy to have that roof over my head. So that's that's um, how it impacts me personally. But also um, at work at the city of Omaha, I mean, we think a lot about you know, what makes a neighborhood vibrant and lively and fun to be, an enjoyable place to be. And a lot of what that ends up meaning is having people around. So we think a lot about um, people living close together, people having good public spaces near where they live, people being able to walk from where they live um, or ride a bike or take transit or drive to, to get to where they need to go. And and so a lot of times that really comes down to the the ugly D word, in development, which is density for some people. <laughs> and so uh, when I think about housing, yes, I think about single family housing, those those houses like the one I live in with yards and, and everything. But I also think about um, apartments. I think about townhouses, condos, and and just trying to find a way to provide a range of options for, for people. Um, so f- for me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of live in, the, in a similar home to Stephen. Um, it's a single family with a nice yard in uh, in Midtown Omaha. And um, but uh, it wasn't the first place that I lived when it, when we moved to Omaha. Um, I I actually I've lived in the t- city for 17 years, and I tend to think of my life here in sort of uh, two different ways. There was there was the time when I lived in in uh, the suburbs in a relatively new home and spent a good majority of my day in my car driving to work downtown. Uh, And then um, we moved about 10 years ago to the home that we live in today in Midtown, which has provided us a dramatically better uh, living environment. Not only do I think the house is nicer, it's considerably older than what I was living in, so there are more headaches with it, Uh, but it affords us an opportunity to drive five or 10 minutes to work and spend much more time doing things that we really enjoy. So similarly, from Steve's perspective, I agree, you know, when I think about housing, especially from a, from a professional standpoint, a lot of the clients that we work with are really interested in helping their employees and or their students get to and from their campus or their organization in sustainable ways, uh, meaning not driving by themselves in their car over long distances. So it does go back to the, the nasty D word, density. Uh, for us in many cases. We work with the Med Center as a good example, and they're really interested in finding ways and developing around there because they have people coming in from all over the world, literally, to work there. And they don't want to have to drive 20 or 30 minutes. They don't want to have to own a car. They want to they want to live next door to the campus. They want to walk there. I'll take a little bit of a different perspective um, with the nature of my work in North and South Omaha and to Habitat for Humanity, housing equals a home. And we all, I noticed um, both of the gentlemen started with their home, and I'm, I'm sure brought images of your family and kids playing in the yard. And that's what we believe is really important, a place where everyone um, that's living in their house or their apartment or their condo, um, where it is something that can be made into a home, a safe, stable, 
place where people don't have to continuously move or worry about substandard housing or issues with landlords and neighbors. Um, For me, again, it's about the home. The power that comes from having a stable environment to grow up in. I want to pick up on what you were just saying, Amanda, um, about a house and housing being about a home, which I think connotes something different emotionally. And I, I grabbed some details from the Habitat Omaha website. 95 million people in the United States, around a third of the nation, have housing problems, including lack of affordability, overcrowding, unsafe conditions, and homelessness. We are in a part of the city that is uh, called North Omaha, and uh, six out of 10 children uh, here live in poverty and uh, lack decent and affordable housing, with all sorts of implications for our communities. So I just want to explore that a little bit more, how housing relates to our sense of community cohesiveness and an inattentiveness to housing um, means that we perpetuate some of the challenges that communities are confronted by. Deep question, Stuart. I like it. (laughs) So I can just say I I agree. You know, uh, (laughs) going back to the first part of of what you said, where all the things that um, tie into housing, and um, certainly that, for me, that beginning thing is the home. And and that's the place that you go to every night. The place where you can you know, read books with your family, prepare a meal, um, share love. Uh, but certainly that in itself is not enough. Um, and I think about um, just today, It's um, we're taping this on Friday, and it's blizzarding out, it feels like. And we had a house dedication around 42nd and Benny Street, and beautiful renovated house, very cute. We're leaving there, and we see... A grandma, her daughter, and her probably in her 20s, and a little kid, little girl, maybe five or eight, um, walking in this blizzard, and they're walking with each two or three bags of groceries. And at 42nd and Benny, there's not a lot around there. You know, we we approached them and you know asked if they needed a ride and asked if you know where they lived, and and they said they were homeless. And you know, that's the the heart goes out to them. And in their case, homeless didn't mean they didn't have a roof over their head. They were staying with one of the um, the girl's stepfathers, so they did have a place to live. But you think about the instability in their life. How long do they have that place to live? How far do they have to walk for their groceries? We don't want to leave anybody out. And that, that includes, of course, the house, but also the things that go with it, um, like, like our friends here were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the things that go with it, that's, I think that's a really interesting point. Um... And and we've talked a little bit about um, affordability as well. That was kind of mentioned, Stuart. You mentioned that as you were reading. Um, and I, to me, that's really interesting as well. If you think about how distinctly different the living conditions are in different parts of our community, it's really kind of mind bending, you know, to to think about and drive through different parts of Omaha. Um, and you know, while I was campaigning, I got to go in some really and in, into into neighborhoods. You know, normally when you kind of drive around the city, you're on the main thoroughfares, you're kind of driving by box stores. And I had the really interesting opportunity to, to literally just go into neighborhoods that very rarely do people drive through. And I got to see all sorts of different living conditions, both really good and really bad. And it really strikes you and um, how how that is occurring and how it's sort of segregating our city in ways that I think are not super productive or helpful. 
I don't have any answers to it. I think the work that Habitat is doing is is great, um, but we've got you know we've got some really big issues with respect to how we can continue to find good, affordable housing in places um, that give people access to jobs as well. Craig really landed on something really important, and that's this access to jobs idea. And I think it relates back to what Amanda had said about um, the importance of not just housing, but, but quality housing. Um, what's What seems to be going on right now in the neighborhoods uh, in the northeastern part of the city, when people end up getting jobs that, end up, that pay a little bit well, those jobs a lot of times are located along the fringe of the city. And they come with a pretty long commute. If it's by transit, it's, it's a really long you know, sometimes several hours and several transfers to get there. As soon as people can, they typically buy a car. And in, and then as soon as people can afford to, they, they move out of the neighborhood. So you have the people who are starting to get a little bit more income, who maybe can afford to fix up their, their homes uh, and that kind of thing. They're leaving the community instead of instead of staying here and, and, and investing in the neighborhood to improve things. And I mean, that's what I would do. I wouldn't want to have a hour, two hour commute to work every day. So one thing that we can try to do is try to figure out how to bring jobs back to this neighborhood, but also to the neighborhood, the parts of town that are kind of proximate to this neighborhood. So even our downtown, um, I was just looking at some reports uh, the other day, you know, in 1963, I think there were something like 45,000 jobs in our downtown area. Uh, today there's about 27,000. So we've lost almost 20,000 jobs in the, in that time period right downtown. And where have those gone? Well, yes, yeah, some have left town, but some, the majority of them are distributed among, like they're scattered out along the fringe of the city and they're not, they're not that easy to get to. And so when you see that many jobs leaving one area, all the areas right around that, you know, they feel the economic impact of that. So whatever we can do to try to reorient some of the development of the city to the core, I think, can do a lot of good, whether or not it's directly in North Omaha. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, bring it to me. So we seem to be talking about some seemingly intractable problems, but these seem to be factors, as you say, that they seem overwhelming when you take them together. You know, if it if you look at the big picture and think of it in terms of problems, it sure can feel insurmountable. At Habitat for Humanity, we like to take the asset-based community development approach, which is a fancy, you know, university word that means focus on the positive. And if you focus from the positive and grow it from there, a lot of good can happen. There's already great things happening. We do have a, a pretty decent bus system um, in the community that does get people places. We do have great neighbors that have lived here for years and that care, deeply care about the community. Some of the housing stock, the old housing stock is beautiful. Uh, it's something that people can take a lot of pride in, the way the old homes were built. 
And the culture that surrounds the community is still thriving. So if you start with those things and think about the part that everybody can play, which is why I'm happy we have um, the fellow panelists here from OPPD and the city of Omaha, everyone doing their part um, from the institutional um, to the grassroots, right down to every individual neighbor, um, a lot of good can happen. You start there and you build on what's working already. So I, I, I'll, I'll build on that. Um, asset-based community development is something that, that you guys do well and I've seen in common. That's it's a big part of what Christian Gray and his team do well. He, he talked to me the other day about the iron rule. Never do for someone what they can do for themselves. And I think that's really important. Uh, there's nobody better to look to than the people that have been in a neighborhood to think about what that neighborhood could become based on what they really, what they what they want uh, and and what they're really needing at that time. So I, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit lately, it, you know, we've, we've recently had this Midtown 2050 initiative uh, pop out of, felt kind of like nowhere. Uh, so I'm starting to think a little bit more about um, gentrification and what that's going to look like and what the impact might be. And the, the ability that we have as a city to create uh, you know, the Jane Jacobs style living, which is accessible to as many people as possible, which creates, you know, a more interesting environment that's more diverse. It has people from all sort of different backgrounds. And quite honestly, uh, in the world that we're living in today, where we seem to be yelling at each other more so than we are agreeing and, and uh, um, building consensus, I think the opportunity to live next to people who you don't often see most days is a really interesting idea and opportunity that, I hope is we're we're really ideating what some of these core parts of our city are um, that we're thinking about ensuring that we have access for people at all different ends of the income spectrum. Uh, I don't know how that's going to look. I mean, I think that's a challenge because as a developer, a few of the developers that I've talked to over the years just quite simply say it's not doable. I mean, you just can't create affordable housing in those places. And I don't know whether or not that's true. I'm not in that world, um, but I hope that whoever is driving that development and or at the city level, whether or not there are opportunities for us to ensure that, you know, that that really hyper gentrification, which you can look to Brooklyn as one of the worst examples of that, um, doesn't happen. Craig, you're, you're spot on about, um, you know, we need to think about, about how the new housing and these new assets that we put into the community are accessible to the people who need them the very most. Uh, and so I think about, for instance, what Metro Transit is doing with their investment in the bus rapid transit system down Dodge. Um, that's a, an improved bus line that goes from West Roads down Dodge Street to 10th. It's got fewer stops. You pay before you get on board. Um, it, it's a pretty slick system, and we'll have that running in 2018. So around each of those stations, we're anticipating quite a bit of development. And what could happen if, if we don't really think this through is we could have development that ends up being higher priced housing only or office structures. And what we really need to do is think about, okay, you, you know, we, we can have a lot of that, but we also need to, this is a transit system that we're putting in. We need to think about who needs this the most and how do we make sure that affordable quality housing isn't pushed away from these stations to other places. So, that's something that um, the city of Omaha recently won a grant from Smart Growth America and the Federal Transit Administration to kind of look at our planning along the BRT corridor. 
uh, one of the main things we wrote into that grant application was trying to understand how we could um, have inclusive housing along the corridor. Um, so we're really excited to get that kicked off. It's it's just now getting going. We'll probably see more work on that in the summer. But I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we I don't know that we necessarily have an overall lack of affordable housing problem in the city. I don't, maybe we do. But I think we definitely have a lack of quality affordable housing in the city. And we have a lack of affordable quality affordable housing in the city near all the other assets that we're putting in. I don't know that I have an answer to this, but I wonder if we should be thinking about how we reframe our view of what a city looks like by thinking first, housing is a human right. And secondly, if that's true, how do we reorient our policies and practices to reflect that? Yes, you've hit it on the head. And I'll, I'll reframe uh, um, housing as a human right because sadly in this uh, time that we're in politically, that almost feels like a charged way of thinking about it. And, and I don't want to go down that path. But I'll, I'll look at the scientific Pavlov's hierarchy of needs and it's food, shelter, and clothing are at the base. And if you don't have those three things, you can't think about the rest of your life as fully as you could if those three things are stable. And so to me, based on biblical principles, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and house the homeless. I didn't say that right, but something like that. <laughs> People could correct me. That's um, how I like to think of it. And I, I do think it's important. One thing, though, that I know that we've been doing at the city, and I don't work on this directly, but um, our housing and community development side, we've kind of, I think that we've been doing a really good job of uh, lately of kind of focusing on one neighborhood at a time, in a way, in Prospect Village or now down in the Deer Park neighborhood. And that those efforts have all been around partnerships and really trying to understand what are what do people need in the neighborhoods? What do they want to see? And how can we work with different organizations around the community to make it happen? Um, so I'm, that's something that I'm proud that we're, that we're working on quite a bit. And I, and I think, Stuart, you know, you, you pointed out the idea of really focusing on, on what it means to be human and living together in a, in a city. And I find that really interesting. I mean, I think that that's, when I think about what goes on in my work and in, with the partners that I work with, um, I think that everyone is kind of trying to do their best to uh, reflect that that idea in their work, and it just kind of comes down to uh, you know different people's experiences that ends up uh, showing up in different ways. You know, there's there's some talk I've been reading a little bit about this idea of peak car, which is to say. There's a moment in time when we've hit our peak number of vehicles owned in this country. And from there on out, it's just going to decline. Uh, and that's a really interesting um, thought exercise to think about how does our city look differently 50 years from now if the number of vehicles that are traveling our roads is, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 percent less than it is today. Um, cars aren't built uh, to foster connections between humans. Cars are built to move humans. Um, and when we have, you know, Stephen, you talked earlier about uh, the number of jobs that we had downtown back in the 60s. Do you know how many parking spaces we had in downtown Omaha in the 60s? We had about 25,000 okay. plus or minus. So it's flipped today, right? Like the number of 
the number of parking spaces that we have downtown exceeds 40,000, if I remember correctly. Yep, and we're down to about 27,000 jobs. Right. So, so they've reversed. Yeah. So, and the, I mean, those, the amount of land use, land that we set aside to park vehicles is mind boggling. And it's, but it's exciting to think about how can we use that land once we don't need it anymore or once we start prioritizing that land for things that are going to have a higher value to our community. Um, that's a that's a that's a fun thought exercise to think about. You know, let's take cars out of the picture. I think the city looks dramatically different if we can move people around in a more efficient way. So, speaking of community assets, I have been in dialogue with three of them today. They include Stephen Osberg, Craig Moody, and Amanda Brewer. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Derp. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. I don't get to make my plug for Habitat for Humanity. Three things, North Omaha neighbors. One, if you're interested in home ownership, we're taking applications right now. Stop by our office on 1701 North 24th Street. Secondly, we have a home repair program. If you own your house and need a repair, uh, we can make the repair for you. We have a small grant that can help offset the cost, and uh, we can offer a zero-interest loan. Lastly, if there's a house in your neighborhood that's abandoned, that's been sitting there for a long time and you feel frustrated, please call us and give us the address. We have a demolition program uh, that can help remove blighted properties, and we would love to hear from you. Our phone number is 402-457-5657, and we love you, North Omaha. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. Behind-the-scenes management was provided by the magnificent Marion Fay. Lives is a production of Squish Talks. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. I'm Stuart Chittenden.